You're listening to a Women's History Association of Ireland podcast. In this podcast, a paper from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. This online conference took place on four Fridays in March 2021 and was supported by the UCD Decade of Centenaries Fund, the UCD School of History, the UCD School of Gender Studies, UCD Centre for Gender Feminisms and Sexualities and the UCD College of Arts and Humanities Fund. This podcast is produced in association with History Hub. To listen to other papers and conference keynotes, go to historyhub.ie. The WHAI conference was organised by Dr Mary McAuliffe from UCD Gender Studies and Dr Fanula Walsh from UCD School of History. This podcast features the second keynote, which consisted of a panel on political investigations, legal archives and women's testimonies of sexual violence. The panellists were Professor Jane Allmeyer from Trinity College Dublin, Professor Rosemary Byrne from NYU Abu Dhabi, and Professor Stephanie McCurry from Columbia University. The chair was Dr. Clodagh Tate from Mary Immaculate College and the University of Limerick. Welcome to everyone to this afternoon keynote panel. Um, which I'm really looking forward to, despite uh, possibly quite a grim topic. Um, thanks to everyone uh, who's been speaking so far today. I've really enjoyed the papers uh, so far. And uh, of course, thanks uh, to, to the organisers of the conference, which is running extremely smoothly. Um, today's uh, keynote panel is uh, Political Investigations, Legal Archives and Women's Testimonies of sexual violence. And we have kind of a three-hander here. Um, We have Professor Jane Allmeyer from uh, uh, Trinity, uh, Professor Rosemary Byrne from NYU Abu Dhabi, and Professor Stephanie McCurry uh, from Columbia University. And they're going to uh, kind of weave in and out of uh, one another's uh, talks. And then following, their uh, piece will have a conversation so uh, about the, the paper. So um, make sure you put in any questions that you have into the chat and we'll, we'll ask the questions of the uh, speakers um, at the end of their presentation. Um, I'm just going to introduce everyone all together first. Um, today we have uh, Jane Allmeyer, uh, the Erasmus Smith Professor of Modern History in Trinity College, Dublin. Her work specialises on early modern Irish and British history, and her many publications include the monograph Making Ireland English, the Irish Aristocracy in the 17th Century. She's currently uh, delivering a, a brilliant Ford lecture series at the University of Oxford on the subject of Ireland, Empire and the Early Modern World. Uh, she's editor of Volume 2 of the Cambridge History of Ireland, and she led the City 41 Depositions Project at Trinity College. She's chair of the Irish Research Council, vice provost, uh, former vice provost for global relations, and director of the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Institute. And she's currently one of the three candidates for provost at, uh, of uh, Trinity College Dublin. Um, so we're wishing her all the best in, in that uh, race. Um, our second uh, panelist, uh, this afternoon is Rosemary Byrne, Professor Rosemary Byrne, a Professor of Legal Studies at NYUAG. She's a graduate of Barnard College, Columbia University and Harvard Law School. 
Um, her academic and policy career has been in the area of international human rights, with particular interest in international refugee and EU asylum law. Um, she served as Human Rights Commissioner for the Irish Human Rights Commission, which was established in the aftermath of the Good Friday Agreement and went on to chair the Scientific Committee of the EU Fundamental Rights Agency, uh, previously worked in the law faculty of Trinity College Dublin. Uh, and our third panellist, Stephanie McCurry, Professor Stephanie McCurry is the Oregon Hoxie Professor of American History at Columbia University. Her research focuses on the American Civil War and Reconstruction, the 19th century United States, the American South, and the history of women and gender. Her books include Women's War, Fighting and Surviving the American Civil War, uh, which is, was published in 2019, and Confederate Reckoning, Power and Politics of the Civil War South, uh, published in 2012, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, she's also interested in the comparative history of post-war societies and the processes of reconstruction in the 19th and 20th centuries. So um, great range of uh, time periods and, uh, and expertise here. So we're really looking forward uh, to this session. I think uh, Jane is going to, to start us off. Thank you very much, Cloda. And I mean, it's just so lovely. I wish we were doing it in person, but anyway, it's lovely to see you uh, online. But also a big thank you to Mary and to Fanula and to the whole committee for this invitation, but also congratulations on the conference. The programme is fabulous. So well done to everybody for just making the best out of a not great situation. Um, it is a bit of a relay race. Just to give you a little bit of context, about why Rosemary and uh, Stephanie and I are working together. So Rosemary and I were colleagues in Trinity and I miss her very much indeed. Uh, but when we were together, um, uh, Rosemary was working in human rights and I was interested in the depositions. So we've been having a bit of a conversation on and off uh, about this for a long time. And then um, I became director of the Trinity Long Room Hub and I had the privilege of really starting to work much more closely with colleagues at Columbia University. Trinity and Columbia developed a two plus two, an undergraduate program. And on the back of that, we wanted to build research collaborations. So the hub teamed up with the Heyman, which is the sister institute in New York. And through Eileen Galuli, the director of the Heyman, I got to know Stephanie McCurry. And it's been, again, just a fantastic um, a, a, a friendship thereafter. But Stephanie and Rosemary and I all got to know each other really well indeed in the context of a project called the Crisis of Democracy. It was an initiative funded by the Mellon Foundation through the Consortium for uh, uh, Humanities uh, Centres and Institutes. And we had a two week summer school in Dubrovnik. And we were all sort of together, very intense, um, lots of long bus trips across Croatia and into Bosnia. And we really started to talk in a very deep way about the interests we all had in uh, at women and, and sexual violence. And so this paper really has come out of that friendship and uh, a collaboration. It is very much a work in progress. So big health warning, folks. This is, I was going to say the world premiere of, that's not strictly true. We did um, deliver a, a, a workshop on it a year ago when we, that was the last time, last travel I did is that last February went to um, 
uh, Rosemary to N NYU Abu Dhabi. The three of us then presented it at a workshop there. So it's the second time actually we've come together to talk about this work and we're particularly delighted it's here because we know that we'll get lots of really constructive um, uh, 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 feedback. You're our critical friends. So I suppose just by way of introduction, what became very clear to us um, is that our work on sexual violence had much in common. Uh, we all work on legal archives, albeit in very different periods, very different geographies. I work on 17th century Ireland, uh, Stephanie on 19th century America, and then at Rosemary on 20th century Rwanda. But we were all very focused on the ways in which sexual violence was and is uh, used for political ends and how it shows up in different legal fora uh, and why sexual violence was and is so effective in instilling terror. So why we asked ourselves, is it important to ask these questions in a collaborative way that cuts across time periods, cuts across national histories and disciplines. Um, what can we gain by looking across time and space? And what has been lost by focusing on the relationship between sexual violence and political terror in particular regions and in isolation? So all of these questions and the truth is we've been mulling on them uh, uh, over a long period of uh, time here. But we very much hope that such an approach will be generative to the analysis of sexual violence in a political context by undercutting any imputation of exceptionalism to show instead a pattern of sexual violence that is foundational in and to political conflicts. And I would say especially civil uh, uh, wars. So our presentation uh, this afternoon draws on three very different case studies. And this is where I'm going to come to our slides, um, which I'm going to show you and then, as I say, switch them off. But the first case study is, of course, that of um, 17th century Ireland. And Clodagh has already mentioned the 1641 depositions. They comprise over 8,000 witness testimonies, examinations, and associated materials in which men and women, about 10% of the deponents were women of all backgrounds, uh, but predominantly of uh, uh, the Protestant religion, or some Catholics, uh, told of their experiences following the outbreak of violence on the 22nd of October, 1641. Um, the depositions were used in the war crimes tribunals established by Oliver Cromwell, but also in later courts. And then in 2010, we published the 1641 depositions uh, online. And um, as some of you will be aware, the Irish Manuscripts Commission is currently publishing uh, all of the volumes in hard copy. And I simply want to acknowledge the passing of Aidan Clark, uh, who was, of course, the genius uh, editor um, behind this project, who, who we lost back uh, in December. But really, the depositions um, is so much a tribute to, to Aidan Clark. What you see in front of you here are the depositions in their original 18th century binding. They have since been uh, rebound and, of course, digitized and available online. So almost um, uh, immediately, the depositions started to be used by for propagandistic uh, purposes. And uh, this image will be familiar to many of you because it's from uh, a 17th century publication called The Tears of Ireland. 
And these woodcuts immediately illustrate how Protestant propagandists exploited the trauma, especially sexual violence against women for political ends. And uh, you can see here how this group of naked women uh, who had been stripped of clothing are being literally uh, uh, rounded up by the um, uh, insurgents and uh, uh, being being drowned. Um, So that is our our first uh, uh, case study. Our second case study uh, takes us uh, across the Atlantic and across uh, time to the United States or colonial America, the the American uh, 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 congressional investigation of the uh, Ku Klux Klan, which dates from 1871 to 1872. Uh, It contains 586 testimonies, some of which were used in court, and they include the first civil rights cases ever brought in the uh, United States. And uh, this is a picture of uh, some of the 13 uh, volumes of testimony um, uh, the Joint Select Committee produced and uh, one uh, volume uh, uh, trial record. These are for the state of South Carolina, uh, where newly emancipated black uh, people were terrorized uh, by the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, Paramilitary uh, organizations of, of white people Uh, determined to maintain uh, racial uh, dominance. This image shows Klan attackers in typical homemade disguise. Uh, Victims sometimes identified them anyway because it was very uh, intimate violence involving uh, neighbours upon uh, neighbours. This brings me now to our third uh, uh, case study. Uh, And here we have um, uh, 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 an original trial uh, chamber uh, judgment. Um, uh, uh, And of course, the archive that we're talking about here are the testimony and judgments from the International uh, 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 Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, established in the aftermath of the 1994 uh, genocide. Um, This is the first time an international court had ever ruled and had ever tried and ruled upon crimes of sexual violence in a civil war. The judgment um, not only provided the first definition of rape in international law, but also the first recognition that rape can be a tool of genocide. And this was a historic moment for the law relating to sexual violence in conflict and a seminal moment for feminist scholarship and something that we'll be coming uh, uh, back to. But I just want to close sort of the the visual part of our, uh, uh, or or what I want to say today by sharing with you this montage, um, which is part of a commemoration of the victims uh, that is displayed at the Kigali Uh, genocide uh, uh, memorial. Anyway, we're not going to show you any other visuals, but I hope that we've given you a flavour of just how powerful they are. And it's just, it's so awkward and clumsy with three speakers and lots of slides. So the rest of of our talk is very much just um, uh, us. But I suppose what I just want to say before I hand on is that each of these events, each of these case studies, 
produced a substantial archive of materials, including on sexual violence and political uh, terror uh, and civil conflicts that has been mined by uh, feminist scholars. We define sexual violence simply and broadly, uh, drawing from the definition adopted by the trial chamber in the Akeyezu case uh, as any act of a sexual nature in circumstances that are uh, coercive. Um, I want to make a few general observations on the forms of sexual violence across the three cases. Uh, we note as a baseline an interesting number of commonalities, even over four centuries. We see repetition of acts of stripping, whipping, gentle mutilation, castration, rape, gang rape, but also sexual, humili sexual humiliation and degradation, including spectacle performances. These occur across time and across place. Such acts of sexual violence in political conflicts involved male perpetrators and female victims, but also male victims and female inciters. Uh, testimony of sexual violence is cloaked in euphemism and requires contextual readings. And it's very important to note this isn't always captured in digital searches uh, where, so it's incredibly important always to read the 1641 depositions. It's really what I'm trying to say. Um, uh, there's no substitute. You cannot just do word searches. Uh, what we notice, uh, the persistent similarity, is in terms, some of which repeat, um, so words like stripped, ravish, and then had their way with me, did scandalize me. Um, and we've also seen how contemporaries uh, describe the spectrum of sexual violence ranging from humiliation and um, uh, uh, degradation uh, to, to genocide. Now, of course, much of this is a work in progress. Um, we are still, for instance, in the process of figuring out what bodies of literature bear out our research questions. One uh, preliminary observation, however, concerns the focal point of the Rwandan discussion, and that's the 1998 uh, John Paul I.K. Ake Yezu trial, where the International uh, Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda convicted a mayor of a Rwandan uh, commune for rape as an instrument of genocide and a crime against uh, humanity. Uh, the recognition of sexual violence in armed conflict by the United Nations and international criminal courts opened a new era, a new era of accountability for rape, including by feminist historians who used uh, the, that recognition retrospectively to recover evidence and to write new histories, uh, including uh, of 19th century America. In other words, taken together with the former Yugoslavia, the Rwandan case that is one subject of our study carries outside significance in the way feminist scholars use it to reflect on the analysis and theorization of earlier conflicts, though possibly at risk of interpretative damage, uh, a point we'll come back to uh, in the conclusion. Now, there are, of course, very significant differences between these cases, which we'll also get into and we can explore further in the uh, question and answer. But let uh, us begin with the uh, remarkable and analytically uh, productive uh, similarities 
that come into focus across a time, place and context. And with this, I'd like to hand over uh, uh, to Rosemary. Thank you, Jane. Um, first, I want to talk about um, the, the, the kind of primary pattern that comes into focus uh, about the nature of the inquiries that we're looking at and the production of the archive. And in that regard, we note three things. One, in each case, the inquiry or the investigation is a mechanism for a broader political project of external actors. Uh, and, and this is because we're really dealing with mass crimes that by definition, uh, require investigation by non-locals, in part because too many local people are implicated as perpetrators, uh, and on account of the breakdown of the rule of law that often accompanies the commission of extreme crimes that occur across sectarian and ethnic divides. And this also exposes the limits of the local fora where the pursuit of truth or justice for victims of atrocities would be somewhat futile. So these inquiries and trials that are conducted by external actors, thus are interventions that are designed to serve broader political objectives. Two, to our second point that we know is it's clear from the evidence produced that the fact-finding processes that we're working with primarily serve this broader political project. And three, in each case, the inquiry or investigation itself is linked to other legal processes, usually trials. So let's look at each of these shared features in the specific context of our first case study. So from the 12th century, back in time, Ireland was England's first colony. From the early modern period, Ireland formed an integral part of the English empire and experiences periods of intense colonization. And the 1641 rebellion was an attempt to reverse this. So the 1641 depositions or, or witness statements were assembled in two phases with the explicit purpose of recording losses suffered by the Protestant community and amassing detailed evidence to justify the retribution that would follow once the state had re-established control in Ireland. So the first phase of the collection began in December 1641, when the government set up a commission for distressed subjects led by eight Church of Ireland clergymen and charged it with collecting statements from refugees who fled to Dublin. The later phase of the collection dated from the 1650s or the Commonwealth period, when a group of more than 70 commissioners spread throughout Ireland, gathering evidence against individuals who were accused of acts of murder or massacre, allegedly committed during the 1640s. And these men and women were tried in newly established high courts of justice or war crimes tribunals. And so we cross time in the Atlantic to our second case study. The investigation of the Klan was launched by a joint committee of U.S. Congress in 1871, and it followed the defeat of the Confederacy in the Civil War, the emancipation of four million enslaved people, the enfranchisement of black men, and the backlash. Three years of white supremacist violence against African Americans and their white political allies in the Republican Party in the Southern states. Just a reminder that party identities were reversed in the 19th century, and it was the Republicans that were the progressives on racial questions. So an estimated 20,000 Black people were murdered by the Klan, 
and a vastly larger number were maimed, raped, tortured, and terrorized. It remains the single most significant domestic terrorist movement in U.S. history. And after hearings in Washington and in various sites across the South, the committee produced 8,000 pages of testimony, most solicited to support the Republican majority's case, which was that the Klan constituted a widespread political conspiracy, that its object was to deprive African-American men of their new constitutional right to vote, and that it warranted federal intervention to enforce civil and political rights of citizens. The new Ku Klux KKK Act authorized the use of the military, suspension of habeas corpus, and trial in federal courts. Because of the, quote, willful connivance of civil authorities in the crimes. It was the first hate crime legislation in U.S. history, and it's still used today. The investigation established grounds for the newly founded Department of Justice trials of Klan members starting in November 1871. And so our last case study uh, emerges a, a century later uh, from the context of mass and systemic sexual violence during the 1994 Rwandan genocide, during which 800,000 Rwandans, mostly Tutsi, were murdered and an estimated 250,000 rapes occurred in the course of 100 days. And in November 1994, the Security Council established the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda to try the most senior leaders responsible for the crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. This was part of a pilot project by the international community that was already underway in the Balkans that sought accountability of major figures responsible for mass atrocities and, and justice for victims. For in the words of former Secretary General Kofi Annan, there can't be real peace without justice. Yet as we know in Nuremberg and Tokyo, international prosecutions of mass crimes and the evidence collected to support them are by necessity selective, targeting the most significant perpetrators of what are deemed to be the most significant crimes. So with this background, I'll, I'll now hand the floor uh, over to Stephanie. He'll speak to the patterns that emerged when we look within and across these three case studies. Okay, so the second pattern that we see when we think through uh, these three very different case studies has to do with the way testimonies of sexual violence emerged in the record at the time. And here we note a handful of similarities. In all three of these cases, testimony of sexual violence when it emerges is incidental to a broader political project of the inquiry. We also note that in all these cases, the testimony of sexual violence that does emerge is eventually and quickly subsumed by the broader political project of the inquiry. The testimony is shaped by the investigative process itself. We could write a whole paper just on that. And the testimony gains significance, the testimony especially of women victims, gains significance when it is instrumentalized to serve those larger objectives of the broader political project. And then Rosemary and I note one other pattern, which is true of the US and Rwanda, but not necessarily of the 17th century case, which is that perpetrator witnesses and defense attorneys, which exist in these cases, produce secondary or counter narratives. And in some cases, those narratives can eventually emerge as the dominant ones. So this is a troubling and interesting 
um, element. So we clearly see four, the first four of these elements in the 1641 depositions that Jane knows so well. The depositions record acts of sexual violence, especially, especially mutilation and ritual humiliation associated with stripping alongside of robbery, assault, and captivity. After relating their losses, the deponent first provided an account of what she has seen and experienced, so her eyewitness evidence, followed by what she heard from others, the hearsay evidence. And that hearsay evidence tended to be vaguer and often included more sensational claims and rumors. The eyewitness testimony often included the names of her assailants, their actions, including the sexual violence that was perpetrated, and the women's words, uh, uh, women's words were recorded here in the testimony. So in total, these become deeply personal narratives of trauma. And this is another thing that repeats across all these cases. These propagandists in uh, 1641 used the experiences of female victims to characterize their perpetrators as monstrous and barbaric in order to advocate for a policy, a radical policy of retribution. And across the centuries, uh, you can see that these narratives have been used at moments of political crisis, including as recently as during the troubles in Northern Ireland to whip up anti-Catholic hysteria and to justify extreme measures. Well, surprisingly enough, even when you look at the 19th century case that I know the best, you see very, very similar patterns. The, the inclusion of witness testimony makes the Klan investigation an absolutely irresistible source for historians seeking to uncover subaltern perspectives. But when we use it, it's crucial to recognize the political logic of the evidence that is produced. Testimony of sexual violence is actually very rare in these records because few women are called to speak. Of 856 witnesses, only 42 or around 7%, a number quite similar, I think, to what Jane found. Only about 7% were women, and only eight of those 42 testified to sexual attacks. Most of what was actually reported of the sexual violence against women came from male witnesses who also, and more frequently, testified, testified to attacks on other men including barbaric acts of castration and genital mutilation. And this is not something well developed in the literature. Confronted with testimony of sexual violence against women, the Republican members of the committee rushed past it and strained to tie it specifically to the Klan conspiracy. This was no easy task given the historical continuum of white men's sexual coercion of enslaved women and their violent reassertion of that right that they claim in the face of these newly freed black women's power to resist. In the investigation and in the trials that followed, the relentless focus on black men's voting rights subsumed both the evidence of sexual violence against women and with it really the broader nature of the assault on the black community. The Klan's violence against women was gravely underreported but there can be little doubt that it figured prominently in the arsenal of weapons they deployed to instill terror in their victims and in the African-American community at large in the U.S. South. Sexual regulation was the very core of white supremacy then and now, involving the policing and enforcing of racial boundaries through sexual violence. Over the long run, white Democrats on the committee 
the minority, proved more successful at instrumentalizing sexual violence against women, building a propaganda machine that churned out stories about black rapists and vulnerable white women to serve their political project of restoring white rule. And this reached mass international circulation, something you would probably recognize uh, by the end of the century with the 1915 uh, film, Birth of a Nation, which is based on the novel, The Klansman, whose subtitle is A Historical Romance of Reconstruction. So this is white supremacist uh, one propaganda 101. And so now we turn to our third case study, what Rosemary knows so well. In the, in, in the initial indictment in the Akeesu uh, trial, like all indictments is, issued by the International Criminal Tribunal for, for Rwanda during its early years, there was not a single charge for a sexual crime. While mass sexual violence was effective in mobilizing the political will for the creation of an international tribunal, it was incidental to the broader aims of the international prosecutor who was focused on accountability for the so-called big crimes of genocide and crimes against humanity. It's widely recognized that the intervention of women's advocacy groups during the Akeesu trial or case led to its groundbreaking, groundbreaking ruling. Hearing extensive sexual violence testimony in the trial, they lobbied the office of the prosecutor and submitted an amicus brief arguing for the amendment of the indictment to include those sexual crimes. The celebrated conviction of the mayor of Akayesu for rape as a constituent act of genocide. However, the fact that it was entered into the indictments meant that the testimony of sexual violence was elicited and shaped to fit the criteria, which was to convict for orchestrated and systematic, uh, systemic crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity. And here it's very consistent with the pattern of the Klan trials, the, case, the indictments, um, the, the charges have to meet the indictment. So here in this case, rape was understood, one of the consequences was that rape was understood through the lens of ethnicity and its victims then were Tutsi and female. The testimony of sexual violence that appears in the Akayesu and many other judgments was elicited and subsumed within the big crimes, producing ethnic, in, in the end, producing ethnic over-gendered narratives of sexual violence in the Rwandan conflict, narratives given traction by the failure of the tribunal to try any Tutsi perpetrators. Now, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda's low conviction record of sexual crimes is stunning given the scale of sexual violence during the genocide. Yet the Akayesu case and subsequent sexual violence judgments were nonetheless instrumentalized by the tribunal as legitimizing uh, accomplishments within the, uh, the International Criminal Court's uh, mixed legacy. But it was also instrumentalized by feminist lawyers as precedents to codify sexual crimes in the 1998 Rome Statute, establishing the International Criminal Court and to advance the women, peace and security agenda in the United Nations. And Rosemary notes that while there is a classic counter narrative of, of Victor's justice that emerges about this case, modernized to include the vested interests of NGOs, it has received scant public or scholarly attention up to this point. 
So this brings us actually to our fourth and final section of the paper, moving into the conclusion. And here I'll turn it back to Jane. Thank you, Stephanie. So I'd like to say a few words about the methodological contribution of this study. Um, sexual violence testimony has long been overlooked and from a historical uh, 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 viewpoint, we have a lot of work left to do. Uh, but from the 1970s onwards, there's been a growing body of feminist scholarship that focuses on sexual violence in conflict, some of which draws in part from testimony that's located in the transcripts, documents and ju judgments of inquiries and trials such as those that we've described and others like them. That scholarship gives excellent explanations for why sexual violence is often eliminated from historical and national memory, especially related to uh, conflicts. And there've been many uh, excellent papers actually in this conference on that point. So, I mean, it couldn't be more relevant. Um, it has also provided a theoretically informed ways to understand the particular traumatic effect of sexual violence, not just on victims, but entire communities across generations. Yet when testimonies of sexual violence have successfully gained scholarly attention, it has usually been part of broader subjects, uh, converge, uh, converging the evidence of sexual violence with powerful political social narratives of urgency in the present. As with Stephanie and Rosemary's case studies, this work is often symbiotic with projects at the intersection of feminism and human rights, and anti-racist and more broadly defined social uh, justice movements. Um, so this all poses questions about whether the pattern we described of erasure and subsuming of evidence of sexual violence from records of conflicts is an ongoing phenomenon. Uh, what, if anything, our study, our comparative uh, perspective can add to feminist scholarship on that particular issue. Uh, that we uh, uh, think we that we think turns on the case of Rwanda, and the way we place it in the historical framework and perspective of prior, very very different conflicts. So the first thing is to recognise that Rwanda was a historical turning point in the long history of sexual violence as a tool of political terror in armed conflicts, as Rosemary explained. The failure of the International uh, Crimin Criminal Tribunal uh, for Rwanda trials to uh, in indict uh, for rape, despite widespread um, uh, public recognition of the scale and sexual atrocities committed during the Rwandan genocide, uh, the prosecution record of sexual violence by the tribunal was poor. Nonetheless, it still had a considerable impact on creating a legal and institutional framework for uh, accountability for sexual violence uh, in conflict at the International Criminal Court and the United Nations. Along with the sexual violence uh, convictions, and I'm gonna uh, abbreviate it, the ICTY, uh, and the special uh, uh, court for Sierra Leone, uh, uh, I.K. Uh, Yesu and other ICTR cases represented a new opening in history. The muted testimony of sexual violence in conflict had become amplified at a time after the fall of the Berlin Wall when supranational governance was reinvigorated. The international human rights regime was expanding rapidly and international law 
had revived legitimacy. This allowed for the creation of international criminal courts and tribunals, but also an awareness and encouragement to use the lens of accountability to newly uh, open up the field, or I mean, sorry, to newly open up the study of the past. Feminist activists were important actors in the process. Some of the women who collected evidence of sexual violence would later become staff or consultants for the Office of the Prosecutor at the ICTR or serve as expert witnesses for trials, as well as authors of uh, contributing to and shaping the scholarship on uh, sexual violence and uh, conflict. The official recognition of sexual violence as a war crime in the late 1990s generated a new round of feminist scholarship that fed back on analysis of historic conflicts, including ones that we are now uh, uh, writing about. Jane has just mentioned that uh, taken together, the Yugoslavian and Rwandan cases opened up this new moment in history and possibly in the writing of history, folding back onto prior conflicts. And here I'm very curious about whether Irish historians of say the civil war in the 20th century uh, see that or anywhere in the footnotes in the things they write or read. But to take one example that I know very well, the two best accounts uh, of sexual violence, of the sexual violence of the Ku Klux Klan, published in 2002 and 2012, so subsequent to the 1990s, draw on international criminal court decisions and human rights law and on the United Nations Women's Peace and Security Agenda passed in 2000, as well as feminist scholarship on the genocides of the 1990s in Yugoslavia and Rwanda as legitimating similar perspectives on past atrocities. But the patterns that emerged from the cases we studied and the attendant challenges of identifying perpetrators and seeking accountability for sexual violence and political conflicts, the ones we saw in the past, still holds. That contextual recognition that we have been stressing of the way evidence and testimony is subsumed in and by the play of power in any given political legal context is no less relevant now uh, in the 21st century than it was in the 17th or the 19th century. And this is something that comes through very clearly in Rosemary's account of the Rwandan case. The global project that seeks justice as a prerequisite for peace, not surprisingly embraces the notion that fighting impunity deters future atrocities. This is what the Klan lawyers said when they went after these guys in 1871. Post-genocide Rwanda has enjoyed peace and impressive development under the authoritarian rule of Paul Kagame. But as Rosemary notes, if you widen the lens to look at the Great Lakes region, where many combatants in the genocide are active in militias, extreme rates of rape and sexual violence are well documented. And while the counter narrative of Victor's justice may get little scholarly notice from lawyers, history suggests that it can resurface and provide violent, uh, I'm sorry, viol uh, provide powerful, uh, powerful legitimation for violent actors and movements as it did in the US South, South after the alleged defeat of the KKK. So the literature all emphasizes the defeat of the Klan. But by the turn of the century, Black voters in those states had been forcibly disfranchised, racial segregation enforced, and the Black community again terrorized by an epidemic of mass public lynchings, 
of alleged rapists per the earlier pro-Klan script. This is the period W.E.B. Du Bois uh, described as a descent into hell. So it's here we think that our analysis might stand to make a methodological contribution, and we anxiously await your opinion about that. As we concluded, across four centuries, three continents and very different conflicts, you can see a strong pattern of how evidence of sexual violence is underrepresented or overlooked in the transcripts and records of investigations of political conflicts because it was incidental, subsumed, and instrumentalized to a broader political project that had little to do with women's particular interests uh, or, or, um, or uh, the crimes that had been perpetrated against them. And given the focus on the recuperation of evidence of sexual violence in feminist scholarship, uh, an admirable endeavor, which I subscribe to, it is a reminder that we need to keep a critical perspective on the sources. Because of the gravity of the crimes and the seduction of the sources, like the Klan, ridiculous pairing of words, but the, the sources are irresistible to historians, feminist historians and legal analysts can take liberties, focusing on the testimonies that do make it into the record, reproducing them in anthologies, elevating them over the counter claims, all of this can inadvertently convey a false sense of their number in and centrality to investigations of past events and efforts to bring perpetrators to justice. Working with contemporary testimony as Rosemary does has other challenges as many feminist legal scholars have been involved themselves in the courts and the cases that they're also writing about. The firewalls that are normally erected uh, in objective scholarship are difficult to maintain with the fluid change of roles between advocates, scholars, and professionals who are themselves stakeholders in the political project of international criminal justice. In other words, the three very different cases we offer here suggest the need to keep sight of the political construction of the archive. We see this as key to properly assessing the nexus of power relations within which historical and contemporary actors operate. So that this, if so that the, what we're trying to say, that is, if nothing else, our study reminds us of the inescapable limits of the evidence which shape any pursuit of justice, past or present. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. You can listen to podcasts of keynotes and many other papers from the conference on historyhub.ie.